Can you imagine growing up in a tent in a commune and then hanging out with Larry Ellison in Hawaii during one of your first professional jobs? Well, battery executive in residence and former tech industry CEO Max Shearson has done it. On this episode of Powered by Battery, Shearson, who was also recently the CEO of open source database company MongoDB, discusses his early years in tech, including working with Ellison, as well as his current interests and passions. These include artificial intelligence, open source software, the future of cities, and how companies can better accommodate work-family balance. Have a listen. So Max, welcome. Thank you. It's fun to be here. All right. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today, uh, you know, from big picture tech trends to the IPO markets. Uh, but I wanted to start by asking you a little bit more of a personal question, because uh, I think not everyone knows that you have a somewhat non-traditional background uh, for a high profile technology executive. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you went to school uh, and how your education progressed along a somewhat nonlinear path. Sure. My first house was a tent uh, on an island in Canada. My parents met in Berkeley in the 60s, and it was Canada or Vietnam, and they chose Canada, and they chose Canada in kind of the 60s Berkeley kind of way. So there was a yoga camp and then a commune and uh, various tents and things. All right. Um, and this was your, as a baby toddler, this is yep. where you were living. Okay. Yep. All right. Um, and uh, my path through school was a little bit odd. I think I went to eight and a half years of school before I went to college, and then I started college as a um, a sophomore, and over the course of five years, uh, almost got enough credits to graduate. So it's definitely not the normal way to do school. All right. All right. So started late, finished late, but didn't graduate. That's kind of a rhyme. Um, and so what, what happened? Then you went kind of, you went into the corporate world after that or? So I thought I wanted to be a mathematician okay. and I wasn't really sure when I saw sort of what that meant, practically speaking, but I wanted to be a able to choose more of where I wanted to live. And also as I got deeper into math, the pace felt really slow and the audience felt really narrow. And so I didn't like it as much uh, as a research area as I did just taking classes and learning. So I was taking a little bit of time working at a record store, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then from there, I got a job through a friend working for Ziff Davis Publishing, testing uh, computer products for their magazines. I did some writing for the their magazines for PC Week. And then from there, I got a job at Oracle doing competitive analysis and then product management and then sort of moved up a little bit at Oracle okay. and then did a couple startups. So it was, again, not a linear path. I never right. had a plan of running a tech company. And it, it sounds like it worked out okay. Well, let's go back to Oracle, though, because I think you joined them in, what, the early mid-'90s um, when the company was at a, a much different place than it was today. And it sounds like you had a lot of personal interactions with Larry Ellison himself, right? It was a lot of fun. I was very uh, fortunate to join at a time that the company was growing really quickly and there were a lot of opportunities. I thought a lot of the time uh, I maybe had 
more opportunity than I thought I could handle, but somehow I managed to get stuff done successfully. So my first VP was Mark Benioff. And so I was working for Mark and Mark was working for Larry. And it was definitely an interesting first introduction to the tech industry. Okay. Some strong personalities, I guess. All right. And then I think I've also heard you tell a story about, um, having to go to Larry's house in Hawaii, I think. And some funny story about losing his sunglasses in the ocean or something. So one of probably the pivotal moments in my career at Oracle in retrospect was when, uh, I was in Hawaii, uh, teaching Larry a demo before a product launch and he lost his glasses somewhere in the Pacific ocean and, uh, thought that we should, uh, look for them. And I didn't really think the odds were very good of finding them, but I (laughs) felt like I couldn't really give up until he gave up. So I just wandered around in the Pacific ocean. And then I felt this thing under my foot and I picked it up and sure enough it was Larry's glasses. Oh and my so, gosh. So this is at some beach resort or something. Yeah, on the, this okay. In the Pacific Ocean. So um, and, wh- and why were you prepping him in? Was the conference in Hawaii or had you just the flown The conference there? was in Japan and he hadn't had time to prep before the conference. And so he told me and Mark to meet him in Hawaii on the way to the conference. And so we did. And uh on the day I was supposed to actually go through the demo with him. I was supposed to meet him at the beach and he wasn't ready for the demo yet until he found his glasses. So I was kind of forced into finding uh, his glasses because otherwise we couldn't prep. Could not prep. All right, so why was this so pivotal? Did you endear yourself to Larry uh, by by well, doing this great act for him? Well, you know, it certainly didn't hurt. Uh, when we got to Hawaii, um, uh, after the uh, launch and the presentation, we went to... Uh, to a press conference and when he arrived at the press conference he also didn't have his glasses and so he looked around and he said max you found my glasses in the pacific ocean you can find them at the yokohama <laughs> conference center go find my glasses and so i ran back retraced our steps brought larry's glasses to him again and uh he seemed appreciative i didn't think that much of it i later heard and i have no idea if this is true or not that after that he hired uh, had an assistant come with him while he was traveling to do things like keeping track of his glasses. Seriously, though, um, working with people like Larry and with Mark, um, you know, you later became a CEO yourself at Mongo several years later. Mm -hmm. Um, Were there leadership lessons that you took from them aside from, you know, always knowing where your glasses are? Yeah. um, One of the things that I saw was that sometimes uh, reasonableness isn't necessarily the way to get ahead. And I think of myself as mostly being a reasonable person, but I think um, the founders who create exciting companies from nothing kind of almost have to be a little bit unreasonable. They have to believe that something that most people would think is impossible is possible, and they have to be very, very stubborn about uh, pushing everyone uh, towards that goal, however difficult it might be at the time. And so um, uh, while my natural style is to be pretty reasonable, one of the things I learned uh, from them and others is that that reasonableness has its time and place, but it's not always. What, I wonder if we could dive into that a little more. What are, what are some examples of that where 
being unreasonable may be the best thing to do. I mean, does it have to do with tackling just really large technology challenges that no one has been able to solve yet? You know, I think that there are a few areas where it takes a lot of just strength of will in uh, creating and growing tech companies. One is the belief that a hard technical problem can be solved. Mm -hmm. Um, Not all tech companies are founded on the solving of a really hard technical problem, but often it's a hard technical problem. Sometimes if you think of uh, companies like Uber and Lyft, it's uh, or Airbnb. It's a disruption of an industry that has a lot of legal and regulatory stuff around it. And whether you agree with the tactics or not, I think it's undeniable that that the companies that succeed in those spaces are often willing to really aggressively confront some of those legal and regulatory obstacles. Um, at MongoDB, um, one of the challenges we faced often was, or one of the challenges we faced on an ongoing basis was really the balance between making the open source MongoDB really popular and uh, monetizing those users with features in an enterprise version of the product. And... Um, uh, Elliot Horowitz, one of the founders and the CTO, was very clear about the necessity, first and foremost, to be the leader in the market and and to um, win the battle of open source adoption. And I think that that was important in the long term. And there were a lot of moments along the way where there were decisions we could have made that would have improved monetization and probably would have helped the company to uh, grow revenue faster earlier in its life, but might not have brought it to the point where it had that dominant market position that enabled it to become the company that it is today. And I think it takes a lot of strength of will to defer the immediate gratification of the monetization in terms of the long term. But then also it takes a lot of strength of will sometimes when you have that stubborn founder to say, no, you know, we do need to do this to monetize the product. We can't be all the way there. So it's, um, uh, it's not just an intellectual game of figuring out the right answer. It's also a real challenge in bringing a big organization with diverse views along that path with as much buy-in as you can, but at least uh, consistent execution, whether or not everybody agrees. Right, right. Well, this is, the problem you describe is one I think that's common at most or all open source companies today. Yep. Um, you know, you're doing a lot of advisory work, I think, in this area for Battery now. Is that a constant kind of tension at these companies? And and maybe you could talk about. It sounds like it seems like MongoDB has handled this quite well. You know, when you were there, I think revenue grew from a million to fifty million dollars. The company went public about eighteen months ago. I think it's doing doing quite well. Some other companies have. Have not fared as well. Maybe you can just talk about, I don't know if there's best practices you think you gleaned from your time at Mongo about how open source leaders should be thinking about this tension. Sure. I mean, the first thing I'd say um, is there's something very important in the way you framed the question, which is it's only a problem for open source leaders. And you need to um, 
achieve leadership as um, an open source uh, offering that's popular in the community before you can have the luxury of dedicating resources to monetization. There's not a lot of value that's created in the number three or four player or often even in the number two player in a space. So first of all, you have to win. And I think the first battle is the battle for mindshare and adoption. Now that said, that is not enough to create a successful business. So if, if you want to be successful, you have to both win that battle for adoption and, and mind share, but also come up with a sustainable uh, strategy for monetization. And that's typically some combination of enterprise features and uh, SaaS offerings to uh, monetize the open source product. And um, I think probably the most important lesson that I took away from managing that tension over four years in MongoDB is the, the choice of doing one or the other is really a, a false choice. And anyone in the company who thinks that all you have to do is gain adoption or all you have to do is monetize isn't seeing the whole picture. So a lot of my role as CEO, I thought at least in that phase of the company was really getting the whole company to see that both were necessary. Okay. But I would think at most open source companies, it might, uh, the way people feel might skew more toward the let's focus on the community angle, or at least among the founders of the company. So Typically, a lot of the engineers and engineering-oriented founders do have a strong community and adoption orientation, and typically the sales and go-to-market team have a strong monetization um, orientation, and that that makes sense. But the sales team has to recognize there wouldn't be these free users to monetize if the product didn't have adoption. And if the product doesn't have dominant adoption, you're going to have an even more dangerous competitor than the free version of yourself, which is someone else's free product and someone else's paid product. But by the same token, the engineers uh, need to understand that without at least a path for monetization that's credible, that can help you raise money to get to the point where the company becomes self-sustaining from a revenue perspective. There's nothing to pay the engineers, and I don't think people want to work on this stuff for free. The Bay Area is an expensive place to live, even if you're not in the Bay Area and lower cost of living areas. I think most engineers want salaries to do their job, and that money has to come from somewhere. And ultimately, in the long term, it has to come from a successful revenue generation business. So Max, uh, kind of building on that, some of your colleagues at Battery recently have been writing about, um, I don't think they agree with this characterization, but what some in the press might be terming uh, threats to some open source companies coming from the big dominant cloud computing provider, which is, of course, Amazon Web Services. You know, Amazon has become so ubiquitous in so many organizations. And I, I think recently, you know far more about this than me, but they've started to unveil some products that could potentially be competitive with some open source companies. I guess two questions here. One is how serious is this threat? Do you think it's a threat or do you think it's being overblown into? Two, how do today's open source companies manage that and survive? 
Sure. So first of all, I think that the intersection of open source and cloud is a really exciting opportunity, but that opportunity doesn't come without pitfalls. I think um, uh, the fastest growing part of MongoDB's business today is their cloud service, even if it's still a minority of their revenue. And I think over time it will become the largest part of their business. And I think as more businesses move to the cloud and as people have an expectation of paying money for cloud services, open source companies can expect to do significantly better monetizing cloud services built around their product than on-prem enterprise uh, versions of their product. And we see in uh, a number of our portfolio companies like uh, Databricks and InfluxDB, very, very strong growth in their cloud-based offerings, uh, similar to what we see at MongoDB on the public side. So I think it's a really exciting opportunity for open source companies at the same time as these cloud businesses become uh, gain scale. Uh, Amazon, who's a fierce competitor in every market and doesn't seem to like anybody else making money that they could be making, um, uh, becomes a really important competitor um, and a competitor that brings a lot of structural advantages to the table because they own that platform. And there are a couple ways that Uh, I think we need to watch very carefully how they leverage their ownership of that platform. One is around pricing. If they can price uh, a database as a service on the internet lower than anybody else because they're giving themselves preferential pricing on the hardware, that's going to keep others out of their markets. And that's the sort of bundling or tying that in other domains the FTC has said is illegal. Um, uh, It may be an area that needs some oversight over time as well. And some of the existing laws may not be really well designed to um, uh, uh, consider the the nature of the stack today with the right. uh, uh, infrastructure hardware um, uh, offered by the cloud providers and the software running on top of it. So that's one area. The other area is that um, there, Amazon is becoming active in um, uh, offering open source software that's completely unrelated to, to their cloud business, or at least appears to be completely unrelated to their cloud business. And I think it's easy to think of that as, oh, this is nice. They're doing something great for the community. They're giving away all the software. Well, the other thing that they're doing is they're choking off the on-premise revenue stream of open source companies that are also competing with them for cloud services by offering for free what is the paid offering of those companies. And so again, I think that that's something that uh, looks like it would have a negative effect on competition that is something that probably needs to be looked at from a regulatory perspective. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not even close to being a lawyer, but 
but it seems like stuff that needs to be looked at uh, to make sure that the current regulatory framework uh, right. really fits the business environment. I mean, I'm thinking of the Microsoft antitrust case where they were bundling products into Windows and offering those for free. It's obviously much more simple. That was 20 years ago, but it sounds a little similar, right? In principle, it's similar. Um uh, but some of the details have changed. And so bundling a free browser uh, along with a copy of Windows it may be something that the current legal framework is designed to um, uh, deal with, but just open sourcing a bunch of software may not be something that the current framework deals with well. So I think People uh, need to look at this both from the standpoint of the laws as they're written, but also the effect of these actions uh, on the marketplace in the long term. Interesting. So f final open source question, then we'll move on to a couple of other topics. But I mean, one other um, potential move by open source startups would be to partner with some of Amazon's competitors, because while they're the dominant cloud provider, we've heard things from, you know, the new chief of Google's cloud, right? And Microsoft has its own service. So potentially could companies tie up with those competing services? Uh Absolutely. And I think that as the um, landscape for cloud providers settles out over the next few years and as it becomes clear to what extent is Amazon a monopoly or close to a monopoly or to what extent is there relatively equal competition between them and Microsoft and Google, uh, I think will determine to some extent how um, aggressive the regulators need to be in looking at these behaviors if there are um, a couple of really viable near-peer competitors in the marketplace, then uh, partnerships with those uh, companies could be a viable way to combat some of these tactics from Amazon. But it's, there's also, also questions about whether... Um, those companies as a group can um, uh, really leverage their strength on the infrastructure layer to, to um, stifle innovation in the application layers. I'm not saying that all those companies have shown that orientation so far um, while the, um, uh, the, other competitors are upstarts relative to Amazon in terms of their scale in the market. They may behave differently, but but when if the market is at some point a stable duopoly or the three of them sharing the market, uh, the dynamics can change there as well. And so I just think we need to look at things and make sure that the marketplace is structured in a way that promotes innovation and gives uh, new companies with innovative technology a chance to succeed. Okay. All right. Well, we talked a lot about open source, but I know there's some other, you know, really high level technology trends uh, that you're interested in and maybe even passionate about today. Uh, maybe we could talk about a couple. AI is one and maybe, I don't know, you're on the board of Cray, the supercomputing company mm -hmm. also. So maybe you could talk about a couple of those and any other big high level trends you think are maybe not getting the notice they deserve today. Sure. I think there are a bunch of exciting things going on. We talked about open source. We also talked about cloud. And I think the transition to the cloud is uh, maybe one of the biggest changes in IT that 
that's happened uh, since the internet and the personal computer. So there's tons of uh, new companies, tons of changes going on in the industry, value being created, um, uh, incumbents having to defend themselves and business models shifting like I talked about with um, uh, open source companies using the cloud to monetize. So I think as a business person, it's a really exciting area. I think that AI is maybe the most, uh, uh, the biggest change that's come uh, in the history of humanity to, to the that's world. Big. So okay. it's, uh, <laughs> it's, I think, uh, something that in the, and I think, even in the medium term is, is going to be, um, a much bigger change than, uh, than what we've seen, uh, come before. If you think about, um, uh, how human, uh, societies have changed and the impact of technology, you, you, um, uh, thousands of years ago, you saw humans, uh, harnessing the power of animals to help them with agriculture and then tools and then the mechanization of that and um, increasing efficiency in all the kind of mechanical tasks that were necessary for human uh, sustenance and economic development. So everything from growing food to transportation and housing and all of these needs were hugely impacted by technologies. Um, you could uh, plow a field with a tractor a heck of a lot uh, more efficiently than you could with an ox a heck of a lot more efficiently than you could just planting the seeds yourself. Um, uh, but all of these things um, automated tasks that we didn't really think touched the essence of being human. Recently, um, in the last 50 or so years, plus or minus, a lot of the tasks um, around computation, around memory, around storage and dissemination of information, right, from the printing press to the internet, have changed dramatically. Um, and so you could argue that all of those changes, the fact that on my iPhone I can have access to just about all the information in the world at my fingertips, and but, but still uh, it's facts or computation and not really thinking. And so um, uh, we have, I think, believed through most of this information revolution that our ability to solve problems and to think creatively is unique to humans uh, and will always be unique to humans. And I think that that is not true. Um, I think it's becoming really clear with artificial intelligence that uh, machines can do a lot of what we would have thought of as uh, intelligent human tasks as well or better than humans. One area where I think that will have a fairly short-term impact 
is around transportation, right? Cars that can drive themselves um, don't just alleviate your need to pay attention while you're on the freeway, but they also change, for example, uh, parking, right? If the car can just park itself and drop you off at the destination and then go somewhere off-site to park, then there's a whole bunch of space in urban centers that doesn't need to be wasted on parking garages and can be used, whether it's for more office space or more housing or more parks or however we choose to prioritize that usage. Truck driving is a huge industry in terms of occupation. There's somewhere on the order of a million truck drivers in the United States. I'm sure I have the exact number wrong, but there's an awful lot of them. Same thing, there are a lot of Uber drivers. All of these jobs, I think, are not long-term stable areas of employment. And I think that as we've had a lot of economic uh, dislocation with some of the changes in manufacturing, a lot of those uh, relatively low-wage jobs have been absorbed into these gig economy things like driving for Uber, right? There's people who might have 25 years ago been uh, working at a refrigerator assembly plant, but now those refrigerators are imported from somewhere else, and those people are driving Ubers. Um, uh, in 10 years, when maybe Ubers don't need drivers, it's not clear what's going to take the place of those jobs. Um, but I think that actually driving is just the beginning, and it's one of the easier tasks that um, uh, computers can take from humans. Not um, that long ago, uh, computers became better than humans at chess, uh, they've also become better than humans at Go, and they're becoming better than humans at poker, which is really interesting because poker is not just a game of calculation of odds. It's also a game of understanding your opponent and what their motivation might be. So I think that if, if you project this forward, there are very few intellectual tasks that I think humans will remain better at than computers over the next, say, 50 years. And I think that the implications of that are deep and profound, and I certainly don't understand them all. Do I mean, is, do you think about a universal basic income then as being something that will be necessary? Probably. Yeah. Um, uh, I think... Um, I think that the demand for labor is going to, to change um, and probably will need some sort of a universal basic income if we want most humans to live with some degree of dignity and hopefully in a democracy, that'll be what we choose. Right. Okay. All right. Well, those are some big thoughts. Um, I wanted to take it back to companies and leadership just, just to sure. end. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to minimize your time at MongoDB um, and talk a little more about your leadership there, but talk about it on a little more of a 
personal level. Um, when I first met you, you had just come from that job, uh, or, or maybe it was about a year in between your departure and coming here. Um, and you were kind of famous for a blog post that you had written, which was of course near and dear to my heart as an ex writer. But, um, you had written about the fact that one of the reasons you left that job was because of the grueling commute. The company was, I think, based in New York, you and your family, your wife and your kids live out here in California in a house with a roof. I've been to your house. It's not a tent. Unlike where, (laughs) unlike where you grew up, it's, it's quite nice. Um, but talk about that. And I think one of the points you made had to do with the current debate. It touches on about, you know, diversity and inclusion and women in technology had to do with the fact that nobody ever asked you how you balanced work and family, but your wife, who's a doctor would get that question all the time. So maybe talk to us a little bit about that and, and the decision that you made and sort of what that, uh, the broader issues that that raised for you. Uh, Sure. Um, so I'll just start by talking about a little bit of the context for that blog post, which I never imagined getting anywhere near the exposure that it got. The situation I was in was I was uh, stepping down as CEO. The company had you know three or four hundred employees. There were at least many dozens of customers and partners that I'd interacted closely with, and I thought it was really important to explain why I was leaving and that it wasn't anything negative about the company or its prospects um, uh, or my relationship with the people at the company involved. And so I I wrote uh, what I thought was a pretty personal uh, uh, post, uh, but intended for a moderately broad audience of people that I'd worked with, just describing my decision and... Um, uh, the difficulty of running a company that was, even if nominally we said it was dual headquarters in, in Palo Alto in New York, the founders in the engineering team and what felt like the heart of the company was in New York and I needed to be there really quite a bit to feel like I was doing the job effectively. And that that was really hard while raising three kids with a wife that had... Uh, uh, an important job, arguably much more important than my job. She's a doctor. She deals with high-risk pregnancies. Um, as important as the business issues that I deal with are, you know, she's dealing with actual lives at stake. So anyway, she had a demanding job. We had three kids. It was hard to deal with the commute on top of the both workload and maybe psychic workload of running a um, fast-growing uh, startup. So, um, one of the things that I observed, which I think resonated was that, that people talk about these issues for women in the workplace, but they don't talk about them for men in the workplace. And I think that among both genders, there are some people who don't really care about these issues so much and mostly just live to work. Um, and, uh, there are a lot of people among both genders who do care about these issues and who um, really want to live a balanced life where they can spend a lot of time with their families and uh, pursue their or pursue their hobbies or whatever other passions there are. And I don't think that we make a lot of space for that in 
in the workplace and in our society today. I think we expect that uh, careers should be paramount for people in any kind of you know high-powered type of career path and that they'll just suck up whatever personal difficulty that entails. And maybe there are enough people willing to do that, that we can fill those jobs with people who are willing to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week um, and think about work all the time. Uh, but I think as a society, we should try to make more space for people balancing uh, work with the rest of their lives. And so it's an opportunity for me to say that to a much, much broader audience than I ever really expected to say it to. And you were surprised by the response that you got. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, do you think it's an issue that more companies are going to be forced to deal with? Or, or like you said, I mean, it's kind of sad to think, but are there enough people that are willing to throw these concerns aside that maybe um, things won't change or it'll take a long time for things to change? So, um, uh, you know, I think predicting how things will change is a little bit above my uh, pay grade, but I think one of the uh, things that I see that I don't like in this area is that it seems to be overwhelmingly frequently that it's the man who takes the 60, 70, 80 hour a week job and the woman who takes the part-time job to accommodate the family. And I think that that creates different expectations, um, uh, among employers about the commitment level of women, even when they're willing to work 60 or 70 or 80 hours a week and have a uh, have or don't have a family situation that permits them to do that. And um, uh, so one thing, for example, is you look at the discrepancy in career progress between men and women around the ages that they start to have children and raise those children and uh, women who had been on par with the men for career progress fall significantly behind in a critical phase there. I, I wonder if it would be better not only for uh, society but for our economy if some uh, family leave was mandatory. And whether uh, male or female, when you had kids, you had to take six months off your job and stay home. No matter what. With, right. with your kids. And then employers wouldn't have a different expectation of what was going to happen with their male and female employees. And maybe uh, more women who wanted to stay in the workplace and on aggressive career tracks would be able to do that and we would have um, a bigger supply of labor for those high-level um, uh, jobs that, that was more diverse and better reflected our society. And maybe that benefit... Um, 
not just to society, but to employers and to the economy, would outweigh the cost of some of those mandatory uh, family leaves. I certainly think it would be a better thing for society and for everyone as humans and family members, but I think it might actually be better for the economy, too, if it kept the whole labor force potentially as a pool for some of the uh, high-level decision-making jobs later in their career. It sounds like your next move, Max, might be either joining a think tank or running for office based on that. I'm not sure. Running for office sounds like about the least pleasant thing that (laughs) someone could imagine. So I would much sooner have like a a elective root canal. run for office all right all right well listen we have some really thought-provoking um discussions about everything from you know gender discrimination and parity in the workplace open source software what when a tech ceo needs to be reasonable and unreasonable uh and even uh, even some talk about tech ipos and other technology trends so max it was really great to have you here um thanks so much for your thoughts thanks becky